We left man coming out of the Garden of Eden intent upon finding life within himself to find unconditional love, his identity, his significance, the meaning to his life, his value in the voice, not of God, but of other creatures. Did you understand that as a principle? We are made to discover ourselves from an outside voice. And that outside voice was meant to be from the Creator who loved us. Having lost that, we now turn to other human beings and we look to their voice, their smile, their affirmation in order to make us feel that we have value, meaning and purpose. Do you get that? You're allowed to nod. It's okay. Do you understand what I'm talking about there? We're listening to the voice of the creature instead of the Creator. And, and separated from the presence of God in that sense, and separated from His unconditional love, the Bible says that's death. We're dead while we're still alive. And, and we're all, we've all been here. I'm not speaking of somebody else. We've been here. And some of us feel that our feet are still there. And, and it, we're dragging in this thing. In fact, by the 20th century, this lie that we can find our identity and significance in ourselves and from others, that lie has been through millions of experiments since the Garden of Eden. Now, have you ever thought about that? Every generation has experimented with that lie to see how they can make it work. And every generation has believed that they will be the generation to do it. Do you remember when you were a teenager? You thought that your parents had totally failed, but you were going to do it. And your teenagers are coming up behind you, having already dismissed you, but they are going to do it. We return again and again, driven to make the lie work. Have you ever noticed something? The kind of childhood you had, if it was an abusive childhood, isn't it amazing that we managed out of the millions of Earth's population to find a mate that reproduced our childhood. And when that blew up, isn't it amazing? Out of all the possibilities, we went and found another one to do the same thing. What is that? That, that is the demand, that drive within me that I am going to make the lie work. And I will go back and back and back to try and prove I can do it. And we do that quite subconsciously, but it's true. We do. Man believes the lie as final truth. He believes that independent of God, walking alongside of God instead of inside of him, man believes that he can be perfect, self-sufficient, in control, or as the scripture says, as God. And when he listens to God's word, he views that as suspicious at the best. The lie he believes is absolute truth. God's word he believes at best is to be held in suspicion. And now I go out into life and I, I try to neutralize my shame. I feel ashamed I'm not what I ought to be. You see, I'm not. I'm supposed to be as a God. I'm perfect. I'm supposed to be in control, self-sufficient. And I'm not. And I'm ashamed of that. Instead of recognizing, of course, that's the way it is outside of God. And ashamed of that. I try to neutralize that shame in your smile. As long as you will say I'm okay, then I'll, I'll, I'll be able to forget the shame, at least for a moment. I get a momentary buzz on, and, and I'm able to forget the shame. 
There's a new equation to personhood. In our first hour, we discussed the equation by which we work. Now, the new equation after the fall of man is this. What I do. See, the other equation began with who I am. Uh, Are you with me here? It's who I am. I'm made in the image of God. I am love. Now, we start with a new equation. The new equation is what I do. Because I've got to do something out here. I'm ashamed of who I am, so now I've changed focus. No longer who I am, it's what I do. I've turned from a human being into a human doing. I no longer just be and be loved. I've now got to do something to justify my existence. So, the equation is what I do plus my success at what I do. And that's usually translated in terms of my possessions. I've been successful, so I've got this. So, what I do, plus my success, and now, plus what you think of what I do. How you rate it. Do you follow me? Who am I? What's the new equation for personhood? It's what I do, plus how successful I am at what I do, plus how you rate my success and what I do equals who I am. So that if you say that I'm doing a jolly good job, then I feel I have identity and meaning as a person. But if you say I'm no good, then I fall apart because I am tied up in terms of my performance, what I do. Some of you look shocked when I said that Eve wasn't in the Garden of Eden. She wasn't. That was my lady. It was after they came out of the Garden of Eden that Adam changed her name. In the Garden, he described her, named her in terms of who she was. My lady. Outside of the Garden, they're both ashamed of who they are. So he renames her Eve. And Eve in Hebrew means the mother of my kids. He renamed her in terms of function, what she did. You get it? So we see each other now in terms of what we do. You see me in terms of what I do. I see you in terms of what you do, outside of Christ, I mean. We, we, we don't see us as persons. We don't see us as individuals made in the image of God. It's, we rate each other in terms of what we do, how we function. If, if, if I fail in, in terms of what I do, then I feel that I myself am a failure. And let me say this, as long as I am seeking to define myself to you in what I do, and define myself to God in what I do, my life will be filled with emptiness and pain inevitably. That's the pathway of the lie. And then, of course, the pain of that becomes too great. And as the generations roll on top of each other, the pain becomes increasingly great. We're we're running out of experiments. And the pain of that emptiness, separation from God, perceiving in our twisted minds that he rejects us because we're not good enough. We turn to the created substances. The creature can't reach us there, so we turn to the created stuff. 
to try and find something that will anesthetize the pain. And that's where alcohol and drugs come in. I've got to, the pain inside of me is too great. I've got to anesthetize the pain. I, and I begin to mistake things for the love I'm looking for. I mean, isn't it amazing that when my heart is crying out for love, I go to the refrigerator and eat Twinkies. I mean, uh, that, that is ridiculous. Ridiculous. Especially when my body's overstuffed anyway. But I, to think, I mean, put it out on the table, look at it, then you laugh at it. It's ridiculous that I would think that food can satisfy a spiritual hunger. Only Jesus is the bread of life, you see. But, but we've got it all mixed up now because I'm so hungry and people can't meet the need, so I turn to created stuff. I go to the shopping mall and buy clothes that I don't need and will never wear because I think that will somehow put arms around me and love me. I, I saw a bumper sticker in San Antonio. It said, I'm looking for love. I will settle for sex. And I thought, there's never been a truer word. I'm looking for love. I will settle for... Put in whatever you've chosen to settle for. You see, we can exchange addiction. You can stop being addicted to this and become addicted to something that is socially acceptable. But a person is never free from addiction until we've received the love of God. But that's what we were looking for all the time. The unconditional love of God is the only answer to all of our cravings, the love which we look for in people and things. Now, how, how do I handle my separateness? Here I am walking alongside of God. I'm separate from Him. But now, how do I handle this? I feel shame. I'm going to play out my life over against God in terms of my shame. We, we all do. did. We, we do it in more than one way. And many times we can't believe that the different ways we do it all come from the same base. But they do. Um, look at Adam. How is Adam going to handle his sense of shame when God finally turns up. Remember what he did? God says, what have you done? He said, me? Oh, I didn't do anything. Oh, there was a little something, but it's, it's not as you think. The truth is, she did it. This is straight from the scripture. He, what, what is he doing? See, now he is handling his sense of shame over against God. Now, it's very important because we do the same thing. Uh, human beings in this point can become very boring. They don't change over the generations. We keep doing it the same way. The way Adam handled it was to disassociate himself from his shame. I, I, I don't have, I don't have shame. Not me. He blame shifts. He takes his shame and he dumps it on his wife. That is one way in which all of us handle shame. But now look at Eve. Look how she handles it. Totally different. Have you ever thought of this? She accepted his dumping. I mean, would, would you not have expected that she would have said, hey, just a minute. Just, I, equal time here. Like, come on. Wouldn't you expect that? But she doesn't. And, and this is so important because th th there are people here that do this. As surely as there are people here who do it the Adam way, there are people here who do it the Eve way. And it's not 
male or female here, the, the men who do it Eve way and so on. What, what is she doing that she just takes it? He said she's to blame. Yeah, that, 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 that's it. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that. What, what, why does she do that? What? What she's, this her way of handling shame. She is saying, if you say so, that I, I, I'll go along with anything you say. Just, just don't reject me. Adam says, God, don't reject me because I'm not to blame. I dissociate myself from blame. She says, don't reject me. If you say so, it's right. It's right. Anything you say, like me. You, you get, you get this? Now, they, they appear to be opposites, but they're not. They both come from the same base of shame. Um, let, let's look at this in more detail. Some of you wish you hadn't stayed. <laughs> um, <laughs> I might say this very seriously. If you, if you feel like weeping, you're among friends. Because this can get very close when we begin to put ourselves out on the table and look at ourselves. Let's take the Eve kind of person. And remember, male or female. That person who will receive the shame. That person feels many, many times less than the average human. Now, I'm not speaking about what you tell other people or what you show other people. I mean, standing in the kitchen sometimes, there will be waves of self-hatred that go over you. Just, it seems to come out of nowhere. You doubt yourself as a human being. And you actually find yourself hating yourself, disgusted with yourself. It, it, it only takes the slightest thing where you perceive that you have failed to do something right. Which can be as simple as not cooking the eggs right. It can be that you were supposed to find a mortgage for the house and you couldn't do it. And you have to come home and tell your wife you couldn't do it. And you just go. I'm no good. And as you're, I mean, as I say, it's waves. It seems to come out of nowhere. There's waves of, I'm no good. I, there's no point in trying. I'll never amount to anything. I'm, I'm not like other people. If anyone really got to know who I am, they could never love me. There's something ugly about me. There's something disgusting. I'm, I'm worthless. I'm unlovable. I'm a failure at living. Call yourself a wife. You ever heard that rising up inside of you? Call yourself a wife. No man in his right mind would marry you. You'd better cling to the one you've got because you're so disgusting no one else would ever have you. You ever heard it? Call yourself a man. You're no man. It's like a volcano would be another word. It rises from within. This person that I'm talking about now is driven by a fear. Everything they do in life at base, if you get down low enough, it's a drive by fear of rejection. I'm afraid that if anybody finds out how wretched I am and unlovable and worthless, they will abandon me. The two words, there'd be two key words, rejection and abandonment. I feel that's what people are going to do to me if ever they really saw what I was like. And so, I'm not going to give you a chance to find out what I'm like. I'll do anything you want. I'll be the chameleon. I will change my shape and my color 
just whatever you want. I, I won't have any will of my own because I'm not worth it. There's nothing about me that's worth it. I was speaking to a pastor just the other day and he said these words. He said, until he saw the truth of what I'm saying here, he said, I used to be driven as a pastor. Driven. But he said, looking back, I realized I was not driven to succeed. I was driven not to fail. Because, he said, if I failed as a pastor, I was convinced I'd be rejected by my peers and by my denomination and by God. Does that make sense? Do you follow what I'm saying there? And so, in order to be accepted, I will do, I will be, whatever anybody wants me to do and be. Because I'm terrified that I would upset those people. Those significant people around me, those special people that are in my life. I'm terrified I'll upset you. And if I upset you, then you're going to reject me. And I can't bear it. I can't even bear the thought of a frown on your face. So I'll just do whatever you want me to do. Because I find my identity in your smile. Because you see, I think I'm so worthless. If you frown at me, that only confirms it. So as long as you smile at me, then I, I feel I can just about make it. I was speaking with teenagers. Actually, we were talking about date rape. But we were talking about rape in general and talking about teenagers and sex. And I asked one of the girls, teenage girl of about 14, who was sort of halfway saying she'd been date raped, but she was also saying she let him do it. And I said, why? Why did you finally let him do it? I said, far rather you've been thrown out the car, beaten rather than just let him do it. Whatever. The... This is what she said. I'll never forget it. She said, if I didn't let him have sex when he demanded it, he would be angry. And he wouldn't like me. And he would tell all the other boys, and they wouldn't like me, and I wouldn't get a date. So basically she said, I let him go ahead and rape me, because otherwise he wouldn't like me. You hear what I'm saying? That is, my only sense of identity is in your smile. And if you stop smiling, the world falls apart. Therefore, I'll let you do anything you want. I'll be anything you want me to be. Just please keep liking me. See, this person is tormented with, if anyone really knew me, I mean really knew me, they'd have to reject me. No one would love me if they really knew me. This person, when they think about their friends, that they're tempted to say, you only love what I do. You don't really love me. And the little voice says, because you're not worth loving. This person never thinks of their personal happiness. They've never taken a real vacation because they're not worth wasting that kind of time and money on themselves. You meet this person and she'll say, I'm his wife. Do you hear what she said there? She's saying, I don't have an identity. I'm his wife. I've also heard many times, I'm her husband. No, no identity. I don't know who I am. I just belong to that one. 
Don't change your plans for me. Because I'm not worth anybody changing their plans for. Have you heard this scenario? You want to go to a restaurant tonight? Oh, yeah. Where would you like to go? Oh, anything is fine. Anything you want. Well, let's go Italian. And inside, oh, I hate it. I hate Italian. Oh, yes, that's fine. Why not? Yeah. Pass the menu. What would you like to eat? Oh, anything. Why don't you order for me? What, what's going on there? And what's, what's that got to do with the gospel? Got everything to do with the gospel. When you see the love of God to you, you will emerge as a person and you'll tell him you don't like Italian. <laughs> now, I'm, 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 you know, I'm serious. Because you see, what's going on there is the fear of rejection. It's saying that I might choose the wrong restaurant. And he might frown. I might choose the wrong food on the menu so people would laugh at me. And say, nobody in their right mind likes that guy. See, counseling can change that. But even if you changed it, until you know who you are because God speaks his love into you, you have not yet emerged as a person. Ah, but then there's the other person, like Adam. <laughs> From his shame base, that is because he is basically ashamed, now he will rise up and disown shame, disassociate from shame and all failure. Remember, he believes the lie that he's as God. Well, God is above sin and above imperfection of all description. And so, by my performance, I will show to you that I am lovable. You should accept me. Look how well I perform. Look at my performance and see how significant I am, both to man and to God. Some of these people, we call them workaholics. They have to outperform. They've got to be better than and produce perfectly. Strange thing, isn't it? They've got to produce for their family the right house and the right car. Must be right in the right neighborhood and the children must have all the right toys and everything's got to be right. But that means I've got to work and work and work to give them. The trouble is, that means I never give them what they really need. But I'm getting something that I need, which is the praise of my boss. But they've never had a worker like this. And I praise myself that I purchased this home and I got these toys and I'm getting my buzz because of my performance, you see. That this person finds his identity and his significance in his work, in his performance. The perfectionist. That compulsion to be right. Got to have the right clothes. You did notice my designer label, I hope. Um, got to be right. Everything's got to be just right. From my clothes to my car, to my gadgets and gadgets. I've got to have it right. I don't drive the car because I want to. It's because I know that you know that it's the right in car this year. I don't live in this neighborhood because I like it. It's because it's the right neighborhood to live in. Everything's got to be right. I've got to control 
That sounds a bit much like being like God, doesn't it? I'm in control. Everything's right. And maybe my whole life is in chaos, but the little tiny bit I do control, boy, do I control it. Every nail is in the right place. Every screw is in the right jar. Everything is right. Got to control. I've got to be like God. Because that's where I find my identity. Everybody's nudging each other. What? <laughs> See, this person shies away from any perceived or real weakness that might suggest imperfection. This person would rather die than admit they're sick. True, because that would suggest I'm weak, you see. This person will not cry. They are cold and hard because cry would suggest I'm sort of weak. Um, in fact, they don't laugh at simple things. In fact, they would never admit they found a new discovery because if you admitted you found a new discovery, it would meant you didn't know about it before. Right? You know these people. In fact, you're here, aren't you? <laughs> you come on something you'd never heard of before, and you say, oh, yes. <laughs> and then you're inside, you say, I never knew that before. But you'd never let anybody know that. Never. See, isn't it amazing? The real God, the real one, he laughs, he cries, he even gets delighted over his own creation. But we don't, we don't want anybody to know that we are weak in any way. I was talking to someone the other day, a, a pathetic story, but I think some of you here can relate to this. There's a businessman who had had so many affairs that his wife never knew about all over the country as he traveled as a businessman. And he was trying to explain to me what had gone on. I will never forget his words. He said this, I was so lonely. He said, all I really wanted was to be held. I just wanted someone to put their arms around me and hold me because I was so lonely. But and this, He said, if I had told the girl that, she would have despised me for being so weak and childish. So I had to come over as a macho man so I went on to sex. Do you see? There's a lot of things happening there. What he was really saying, I'm frightened. I'm alone. I want someone to hold me. I've got to come over as the man in control. And so I'll come over as the macho guy who wants sex again tonight. And had destroyed his life and his family and everything else. Do you get this man who, who lives? I'm in control here. I'm perfect. I never let anyone know I'm crying inside. I'm hiding behind my mask and it is so lonely behind the mask. It's no wonder that this person, the Adam kind of person, hates the grace of God. For he, the God he worships only loves perfect people. A God who loves bad people, who loves failures, to this man is repulsive, it's disgusting. When this man hears that Jesus receives sinners and eats with them, the friend of taxmen and sinners. He can't accept that. He doesn't understand it. This man lives happily with rules. Because if you give him rules, it's something he can compulsively try and be perfect with. Having the rules makes him feel morally superior to everyone else. He's got the rules. He despises and disassociates himself from non-rule keepers and gives them his shame. 
This is the kind of person who joins cults. He loves the discipline. You find this person is a racist. Religion and racism go very close together. Because I got it, I'm better, and I'm trying, and you're not. It's much the same. I thank you, O oh God, I'm not as other men. That, that's this fellow. Of course, they, they don't realize it, but they're more controlled than anybody. They think they're in control, but really they are controlled. They're controlled by what others think. This person goes through life saying, what will they say? What did they say? I don't know if they really understand it, but they're saying no one must see me as I am. See, No one must know I'm lonely and afraid. They're going to think I'm macho. So I won't tell the girl, just hold me. I've got to say something else. Got to get, no one must get past my mask. No one, no one must know that I'm less than perfect. Because only then they will love me and accept me. It's amazing, these two get together. <laughs> they do. Do you realize that most of us are involved in the dance of shame? Most of us, in fact, all of us are. Some of us are really involved in it, and we know it. Others, we're not, we're not conscious of it, but we are. See, the man who's in control, who's got the answers, he needs someone to tell him that. We're back to the voice from outside. I, if I'm the Adam kind, I need to be needed. Hey, you pastors here, this is our problem. More pastors go into the ministry because they need to be needed. I speak that wherever I know. We need imperfect people to prove that we're perfect. It's a dance. Right? You never heard of this before? <laughs> Shameful dancing. <laughs> it's <laughs> no. Someone's got to take the lead, right? So the man in control is going to take hold of these poor people who need him so badly. And as I feel needed, and I'm helping the helpless, I get my buzz. Hey, I told you, see? I'm not shamed. I don't have shame. Often these two people marry. And all the married couples nudge each other. But it's true, they often do. Um, this kind of person will often find a career in rescuing those in need. Pastors. Many churches are built on shameful dancing. You will get a leadership that believes they've got all the answers and mysteriously they draw to themselves those who want to be controlled and manipulated and shamed. And so you have a leadership that manipulate and shame and control and a congregation that delight in being controlled and manipulated and shamed. Fact is, he will go to any lengths to make the needy one happy. I want you to hear that very carefully, happy. I didn't say solve their problem. Number one, he couldn't solve their problems anyway, because the truth is he's got the same problem, just coming out a different way. But he keeps them happy. He feels responsible. Look, at, look inside. Let the Holy Spirit bring this to you. You feel responsible. That's the key word. I feel responsible to make this other person happy. 
If, if they're not happy, I feel I've done something wrong. I feel I'm their appointed saviour. I am their refuge. I am their strength and strong tower. And because I will go to any lengths to make them happy, it's amazing the excuses I make for them. I will lie for them. I will cover for them. I will excuse them. But every time I'll avoid the real problem. Because you see, I need you to be there needing me. You see, this is a dance. It's, we're back and forth here. You have the need. I think I got the answer. I'll make you happy. You be happy. I'm on a buzz. Right? Back, we're back and forth here. It's shameful dancing. I, I need the, I, I get my significance from that, you see. I, I feel in a warped, distorted way that you love me. Because I'm helping you. I'll even let you hurt me as long as I can think I'm helping you. And of course, the truth is, again, I think I'm manipulating you, but you're manipulating me. You come down to breakfast and you look sad. I immediately say, what did I do wrong? You ever notice this? Boy, are there lights going on here. <laughs> you know. And then when he comes down with a smile on his face, you say, I must have done something right. That's total twisted thinking. He's responsible for his face and you're responsible for yours. <laughs> I, 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 right? <laughs> See, the tragedy is that this person will take abuse in order to be needed. Because we're back to it. I can't say no. Can't say no because then the fear of rejection. I, I, I'm, I'm responsible for your happiness. And I, if I say no to you, if I give in to it, if I'm harsh with you, I, then I'm going to cause unhappiness. So I hate myself for saying yes. But I've got to stay in control here. I've got to make sure everybody's in the right place. You loving me, you smiling, and I've said yes at the right time. You know, you've got four kids with typhoid fever. You're coming down with cholera and the pastor says, bake me 400 cookies and you said yes. I mean, why on earth did you say yes? Because you couldn't bear him being upset with you. It's approval addiction. We can't say no. We've got to say yes to keep everybody in place, smiling happily. We go through life saying, I ought, really, I... I suppose I should. If, if I don't, who will? We feel this responsibility with the Savior of the world. We've got to rescue everybody. We've got to be there when they need us. And we can't say no. Because our identity is coming from their voice. They are speaking into us our identity. Instead of God. Because when God is speaking into you that you're loved, you're suddenly free to say yes, no. Because I don't need your smile, you see. I don't need you to like me, to give me my identity. So I'm suddenly free, and now when I bless you, I do it because of you, not me. Do you get that? Because the tragedy is that often this that we're talking about now is thought about as love. Many people interpret this as ministry and service. You know, you're on every committee in the church. You're working yourself to a frazzle. 
I, I mean, <laughs> and, and for what? For why? No, no person is supposed to do that. You're doing it for you. You need the buzz. You need that affirmation. When I go to the mission field, more than once I've sent missionaries home. I've given them the gift of a one-way ticket to America because they don't belong in the mission field. I'll call him James, but I've met many of them on the mission field. Many. I've met many pastors too, but they show up more on the mission field. James answered an appeal in a missionary convention. He answered the appeal to go to the mission field. And the idea came from the speaker, but it was already resident in James's head that God would love him more if he sacrificed and went to the mission field. That's your performance thing, that I've got to do something for God to love me. I can't just be love. And so, if I do the ultimate sacrifice, then God surely would ultimately love me. And also, as the appeal for missionaries was given, it was said, if you don't go, who will? Every red flag should go up when you hear that. And he responds by, well, I guess I ought, I should. And he went. And now he hates the natives. He hates the bugs, the climate, the food. And because he hates them, he feels that God has rejected him. And he's sitting in total spiritual despair, mental destruction, emotional chaos. I sent him home. He never belonged there in the first place. I said, go and sit on the couch and be a couch potato and know that God loves you whether you do something or not. And when you know God loves you, then your service will be a response to love, not to get it. What about, um, there's Fred and Marty. Fred's an alcoholic and a wife beater. When you meet Marty more than once, she's got a black eye and a broken rib. But you see, Marty loves him. Because when he's drunk, he's so pathetic. He's so helpless. And she feels that it's her responsibility to rescue him. And her idea of love is to lie for him. Tell his boss that he's sick when really he's drunk. To cover for him. And to tell everybody out there as she lives in denial, that he's getting better. Isn't it crazy? That she, she feels that she's needed, you see. She feels that she's loving when she's lying for him. And really, says she, his recovery that isn't happening as fast as it should is her fault. Because if only she would love him more and pray for him more, then he really would come to the Lord. So really, don't blame him, it's my fault. Aren't we twisted there? As if she's responsible for his alcoholism. And when he beats her, she feels it's her fault. Because really, she feels she's so worthless and no good. And the way she does things, it's no wonder she gets a beating. She deserves it. And she doesn't go for help. Because she told me, that no one in their right mind could love her 
She's so worthless and no good. But Fred does. He's really a good man. And so I can't leave him because no one else would ever have me. That's real. I'm not making that up. In fact, you're probably here. Marty's are all over the place. I, I think I'm in control. I think I'm rescuing, helping, saving, but really it's out of my own shame and worthlessness. And then there's Phyllis. Oh, thank you, Phyllis. We knew we could depend on you. You bet we could depend on her. She volunteers for everything. You'll find her name in the bulletin every week. She's always there. But inside, good, dependable Phyllis is resentful. Why does she do all of that? Out of fear of rejection. Out of this twisted sense of responsibility that if I don't do it, who will? And think I'm sort of Messiah here. I've got to handle everything. I've, I've had them come to me in churches and say, if I'm, if I'm not on the committee, no one's there. If, if, if I don't clean the church, no one will clean it. And I've said, great, go home and let it go to pot. Give it to the cockroaches. And maybe then the rest of the church will wake up and do what they should do. But you see, this dear person, male and female, they've got it in their heads. They are the Messiah to the church. They've got to rescue the entire body. And if they don't do it, no one will. The whole of the kingdom of God depends upon them. Doesn't, you see. That's part of the lie. And we think it's service. We think it's dedication. We say we're doing it for the love of Jesus. We're not. We're doing it for the love of ourselves. This, this kind of stuff I'm talking about is not love because love is for the other person. Totally. This, the nearest I can get in this, it's a boomerang. Do you know what a boomerang is? That aborigine thing, you, you throw it, but it always comes back to you. This love is mentioned, well it isn't mentioned, but it's referred to negatively in 1 Corinthians 13. It says true love, the God kind of love, seeks not its own. All these people I'm talking about, they're seeking their own. I'll go to the mission field because then God will love me. I'll go to the mission field because then everyone will know I'm dedicated. You're not going to the mission field for the person, you're going for you. Six its own. I'll look after you, I'll be your refuge, I'll lie for you. Because then I feel that I'm needed. It's the boomerang. I'm involved in everything in the church. Then I feel that God can't do without me and I'm needed. And all, all that helps me to forget. It neutralizes this sense of shame that is there. Because if you forget, Phyllis, you'll soon find out where she's coming from. Bless her heart. If you forget to put her name in the bulletin, she falls apart. She tells you she's so easily hurt. Dear, dear Phyllis, she's not easily hurt. She just doesn't know who she is. And her identity is in the thanks she gets. And at home she cries. She says, I'm a slave and no one appreciates me. I look after everything and everybody, but I'm dying on the inside and no one cares about me. She's right. We desperately, desperately need to know the unconditional, limitless love of God brought to us through Jesus Christ by His Spirit. To have the Holy Spirit fall upon us.
and then call us into wholeness. And we'll walk back into our life and people will not know us because we're no longer groveling, looking, controlling, rescuing. We're expressions of God's love. See, God's love, if you think about this, God's love does not seek return. God loves me not if I'll love him back. God loves me whether I love him back or not. For God loves me for my sake, not for his. Does that, does that make sense? God, listen to this, God is not compelled to love. He loves by choice. God doesn't look at you and say, well, if I don't love him, who will? <laughs> right? Jesus doesn't look at the Father and say, well, I guess I ought to, you know. <laughs> okay, we laugh, but it's true. Now, do you understand what I mean? Now, God's love is not a compulsive love. There's not a push from the outside or from the inside. He does it by free choice. There's never an ought, should, must, if I don't, who... No, no, that's all compulsion. People are pushing me to it. This is love because I choose. And I am totally free to do it. He loves freely. doesn't look for any rewards. And God does not seek your happiness doesn't. If God sought your happiness, he'd do what Marty did to Fred. He'd lie for you. Nor does God see you unhappy and say, what did I do wrong? Because he loves you, he makes you face the result of your decision. If Marty loved Fred, when he's drunk, she'd make him call his employer and tell him, I'm drunk. You're not loving that teenager that's sprawling on the couch on dope. It's not love to cover, pretend. No. God doesn't want our happiness. He wants to bring us to our full potential as human beings. And sometimes that makes us very unhappy to start with. When he demands that we act responsibly, I don't like that. But love makes you act responsibly. Love never treats you less than a human being by lying for you. And when I come to God's love, my performance is killed. Does that make sense? When I come to the love of God in Jesus Christ, all my performance for God is killed. That is what Paul meant again and again in the epistles when he says that he died when he came to Christ. Have you ever thought about what that means? He died. When I look at the fact God loves me unconditionally, then suddenly all my performances for him and all my services and involvements and shoulds and oughts and musts, the whole lot are no longer positives, they're negatives. Does that make sense? If God's love is a free gift, if I'm trying to earn it, I'm actually pushing myself further away from it. So when I will come to accept God's love, it kills me dead in the area of my performance. That's the real meaning of repentance. 
Repentance isn't saying, sorry, I sinned on the 9th of August. Um, repentance is saying my whole life has been built on the wrong structure. Repentance is saying my entire life has been built on the lie to think I can perform in such a fashion as to be acceptable to God and to others. It's coming to realize that was all wrong, totally, utterly wrong. And in that sense, you die to the performance mode. I die to the doing and become a being. I'm loved and I can't do anything except say thank you. I've sinned. And if you're in the performance mode, as so many in the renewal movement are, when I've sinned, I come and say, now God, I did sin, but it really wasn't me. And, and I promise you, God, it won't happen again. In fact, I promise you, God, I'm now going to start reading my Bible and praying. See, all of that means you're not coming just as you are. You're coming having mortgaged your future in promises. And, and, and I mean, I don't know. If I believe I am unconditionally loved, I come just as I am. No excuses, no blames, no promises, no deals. Just as I am. Here I am. I am loved. I'm not, I'm not going to promise. I'm not going to try. I'm loved. Come, Lord Jesus. And that, that kills the performance thing. I found my significance. I have found my worth in what he says about me, not in what I say about me to him. Did you get that? I am satisfied with his love, not with what I'm trying to work up inside of me for him. I come. This is radical. I can see some of you are frowning delightfully at me. I, I know I've got through to you when you start frowning. It's, I know it's backwards. It's totally backwards to what we've been taught many times. But I realize I'm loved. Now I go back to all these people that are in my life. I can't rescue you. See, I was a pastor for 17 years trying to save the world. Then my ministry fell apart. I sat on a beach in the Virgin Islands, without a church, without an identity, because I didn't know who I was apart from my ministry. And I discovered God loved me. If I sat on the beach for the rest of my life and didn't perform for him ever, he still loved me unconditionally, infinitely. And in the wonder of that love, I went back into the ministry. I've been talking about it for 20 years now, that God loves us unconditionally. And I'm not, I can't say, I can't do a thing for you tonight. I can't. I don't come with some... Holy wand that I will wave over you and say to God, see what I did to them. I can't. I don't have to, isn't it fantastic? <laughs> I mean, that's the truth. What a relief. And on top of that, I'm here by choice. I didn't have to be here. And if I'd have said, no, I don't want to go, God would still have loved me. I'm here because I want to be here, because I've got something to share with you and know that He is the Savior, the refuge, the strength, the rescuer, and I'm a co-worker together with Him. See, that's, that's, well, what can I tell you? I think you've got it. 